Okay, our reading today is from Matthew 25. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten young women who took their lamps and came out to meet the bridegroom and the bride. Five of them were dull-witted, and five of them were thoughtful. When the dull-witted took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the thoughtful took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all dozed and fell asleep. But at midnight there was a cry, Behold, the bridegroom, come out and meet him. Then all those young women arose and serviced their lamps. And the dull-witted said to the thoughtful, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the thoughtful replied, Perhaps there will not be enough for us and you. Go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those ready to receive went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other young women came, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he replied, Amen, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man comes. Thank you. So, yeah, so we're in Matthew 25, or, yeah, 25. If you want to turn there, that's where we'll, we'll spend some time uh, this afternoon. Just kind of as a recap of quickly, last week we discovered that even if we accept the foundational reality of life with God, Life in which we are assumed to be lost. That's what the first few parables told us. Remember, they were assumed to be lost, but in foolish love found. They were assumed to be lifeless, but in messy love cultivated to restoration. Even if we believe such truth, we assume at times that to build a life with God requires that common sense wisdom of the living dead. That we need to calculate our actions on what you we know we can do or are able to do to ensure respect and peace to ensure that we get to live in the thing which we get to live in, the life that we are choosing to live in God. Life with God is contingent on calculated knowledge, or so we practically live. Like maybe we wouldn't say that in those exact words, but isn't that kind of how we live, right? Like if we, we calculate our interactions, our actions, or things we do and we don't do based on what it gets us, what it earns for us, what it does for us, what it places us in, what we think God's reaction will be, and all those kind of things. And so we calculate how we live. Ironically and somewhat comedically, Jesus says that life with God is more foolish than that. It doesn't quite work out. The math doesn't quite work out. It requires not a striving to live, to succeed in our efforts at life, even life with him, but accepting our losing, trusting that it's the losers, the lame, the least and the lost, the dead and the poor, which actually live and live fully. The funny part of it all is that, in truth, losing is all that we are actually able to do. That is the one thing that we can do. It's the one thing that none of us will fail at doing. We will all lose. We will all die. That's the one thing we can't screw up. And that's exactly what is required. So what Jesus requires of us, it seems, is the only thing we can genuinely give, our needy life. That's it. So say that we believe him. Say that we take Jesus at his word even and aren't offended by him and our neediness. Even if at some level, if we're honest, our pride, our common sense, our sad vision of what is possible and not are admittedly a little offended or at least a little confused. What then are we supposed to do? If life with God is nothing I get get in on via calculation, nor even something that I can stay in through my wits and common sense wisdom, then what is there left for me? The simple answer is live like it's true. Live on the love of God, in the love of God, by the love of God, through loving like God. 
But I know that's not what, what you're really after. Practically, beyond that churchy trope and in detail, what you're really after is what are we supposed to do in between being brought home, being reborn, and the actual end of time? Well, Jesus' final four parables in Matthew's Gospel, two of which we're going to look at together in this final couple weeks of Epiphany, are stories told in the moments leading to Jesus' final revelation of life as it truly is. That now judgment of the world and its ruling forces, the same red force earlier, right? By which the way to real life is cast out and access is freely granted. In these stories, Jesus reveals images of how we, as Peter would later say, stay effective and fruitful in our knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Clear-sighted enough to live like we get the joke. Live like we're in the light. And are actually cleansed of our former sins by the sinless Savior. So, let's jump into the story and see if we can see what Jesus sees. Now, I have to admit, this, of all the parables this, this epiphany season, this is the one I was least looking forward to. The, the, the one that uh, is, a, is seemingly um, pretty straightforward and, um, and one that is, again, just not, it's just not as fun, if you're honest. Apocalyptic things are not nearly as fun um, as, as death to life, resurrection things, right? Like when we talk about the end. But I think there is something that we need to note to help us as we kind of jump into this story. A little bit of context of where the story is found, both in Matthew's gospel and the story of Jesus' life, and in what, uh, what you know, more theologically is called the, 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 the eschaton, the, the end time, the how, this, how this, all, this whole thing plays out. If you notice, like literally in Matthew's gospel, Jesus tells these stories at the end of his story. At the end, just before the moment, the world-transforming moment of history is about to take place. Matthew 26, verses 1 and 2 say this. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, these four parables, again, the ten virgins or the ten young women that we're looking at today is the second of the four. When he finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. In just a couple days, a few hours from the moment Jesus finishes uttering these words, his story ends. In just a few days, Jesus will complete what he set out to do, bringing an end, fulfilling the time, and ensuring that life with God is seen for what it is, the only life that there really is. Jesus' ministry and revelation reached their perfection, their fulfillment, their maturation, what the Greeks called the teleos, the end, here at the end of life on our own. Life as we've known it through our common sense wisdom like winning. Pretty soon, Jesus will lose. He'll be crucified. And his loss will be the world's win. Everything gets flipped. Everything starts over. While life goes on after the cross, it is a totally, life is totally different from life before. Kind of like how in history we say B.C. to A.D. Literally, the world changed. And even those who wouldn't affirm it, changed. The way we measure time changed, even at this very moment. And still, the life after would not be the only life after that was coming humanity's way. There is still one last ending, a terminus, a maturation, a completion of history in store for us. While we are waiting for the second end, nevertheless, we live now in a time different, even if not finally and fully. Jesus' stories here at the end are not so much about when, the when, where, and what of the end, end, 
the final end. What about the time between the ends? Confused yet? In some ways, Jesus is the end. He said it in John 12. Now is the judgment of the world. Now is the ruler of this world cast out. Now, in this moment, time is fulfilled. Maturated. Come to its conclusion. And yet time continues to another terminus. And so we're between ends is where we live. We find ourselves in between ends. That's how chapter 24 ends, with Jesus making sure we don't get too off target by speculating about specifics of the end. end. With the story about him showing up, not, not later than we expected, like our story today, but sooner than expected. The way Jesus works these parables, the first parable being the kingdom arrives sooner than you expected, the second parable being the kingdom arrives later than you expected, are told in a way to help us get over that anxiety of when to expect it. You don't know when to expect it. That's what he says in 24. The angels don't know, the Son of Man doesn't know, like you're in between the ends. It's not about when it happens, it's about that it's happening. And it's about how you live in between the ends. Unsure of the timing, but sure of the heart of what happens between the ends. Hopefully, now you see that the stories are less about how the end of ends arrives. These stories at the end are not just about how the world ends, but about life in between the ends. Life after resurrection, but before consummation, if you want to get theologically and technical about it, right? This is a story about, these stories are told so that his disciples will know how to live after the resurrection, but before the consummation. That's what these stories are about. They assume that there will be an end, end, but they also assume that there's a delay. There's time between the ends, and that's the time that we find ourselves. So if we kind of know that, if we know that these story, these parables are not about something that happens right at the last moment, they're not trying to tell us about some sort of uh, predictive way of trying to, to get to how this plays out, or even trying to paint a picture of what the actual end looks like. Specifically, like here's what the last end end looks like. Then we can say, okay, so how do these parables shape the way we live now? If they're about living in between the ends and not just what happens on the day that Jesus returns, that final time, but are meant to shape how we live in between it, then how, how do they do that? So today what I would like to do to help us kind of see that and maybe get into that at least a little bit is I want to retell the story with a bit of cultural context to help us get in on the light of what Jesus is saying, and maybe, maybe, the light that he desires us to walk in. And so, you can have your Bibles open, you can look at, at um, 25, 1 through, 1 through 13, which is where we'll go, but I'm not going to read it verse by verse. I'm gonna, it's going to flow in the same, same order, same, same movement as it, but I'm going to add in a few things, add a little bit of elaborative, elaborative nature to it, fill in some of the cultural, historical kind of pieces as we go, but just like we would any other time kind of reading scripture, what I'd love for us to do is just kind of take a minute to breathe and ask the Spirit to show us what he would have us to see, to let us hear what we need to hear. Like any kind of Lectio practice that we would do, we would just take a minute to even hear the retelling of the story in a way that allows us to enter the story. That we can actually be the ones that find our place in the midst of the story and feel and hear and experience maybe God actually speaking to us. So we do that with me. We close your eyes for just a second. 
take a deep breath. Breathing in. God with us. Breathing out all the things that might keep you from hearing, listening, and seeing. And then just ask with me. Father, speak to us. Spirit, show us the light that we live in, the light of Jesus. Guard our hearts and our minds in a way that it frees them from our assumptions, from the assumptions of others, and allows us to walk in the truth that is the light of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. <laughs> Say it again. Amen. Um, okay, so the story of the ten virgins, more literally translated, ten young women, unmarried young women. So life with God between the ends, Jesus said, is something like being a young girl invited to a grand party. Set, let that soak in for a second. Life between the ends is something like being a young girl invited to a grand party. A grand party. Not a destruction, apocalyptic, like, you know, uh, meteorite shattering into the world. Not a grand war, but a party. A grand party. Your invitation, like all the other guests, is not based on anything other than the uncontrollable fortune of your birth and the generous joy of the party host. You are part of the community in which this party takes place. This particular village-wide shindig is none other than the most eligible bachelor's wedding to the community's favorite maiden. And you, as a young as you are, are not only invited, but are now eligible to attend with friends rather than mom and dad. Needless to say, you're pumped. It's your first time to go to the party on your own. The thing is, parties in, in those days are not quite as time-oriented as parties today. The festivities are, in truth, going to start without you. The bridegroom will make his way to the bride's home, which is itself a whole escapade. There they'll have the rather elaborate and intimate ceremony with immediate family, which no one knows precisely how long it'll last. But eventually, the bride and the groom will return to his father's house. That's your host, by the way. The route back is another Mardi Gras escapade. And that's when your party really begins. Like most others, including the crew of friends you're running with, you're ha are hanging out near the end of the homecoming route, ready to receive the bridegroom and bride when they arrive, and thus be escorted with them and the other village-inclusive attendees inside. While the party is already underway in another place, you go to your spot along the presumed route, ready to wait and enjoy all the merriment of waiting with others. Being a young woman back then, and sadly still today, required a bit of prudence when out at night and unaccompanied by an adult, both for physical and ethical protection. The light you carry, your family's trusty lamp, filled with the oil needed to get you where you needed to go, is to show you the way, yes, to reveal what's in the dark, absolutely, but it's also to show people who you are and that you're not hiding. This light is how you'll be recognized for who you are and what you're up to. While the light is cumbersome and the reality of its requirement disheartening at times, I mean, after all, wouldn't it be nice if there was no darkness or danger or dishonesty? You know its value. Plus, everyone in your crew has to do it too, so it's no big deal. 
Plus, if things go as they should, if the party comes as an expected time, even within some range of expectation, you won't be in need of the lamp for too long. You'll be in the well-lit party soon enough. Still, something inside you says you better take some extra oil just in case. The oil jar is a bit awkward to carry, annoying to keep up with, and clashes with your party attire. But you grab it anyway and head out the door. When you find your friends, you notice a few others, like you, have also brought extra oil, but half the group hasn't. As you sit chatting about everything under the setting sun, the subject of the oil comes up. The ones who didn't bring extra are confused at why you'd go through such trouble to bring something you certainly won't need. Why would you need extra oil? After all, they say, don't you know this bridegroom? He's the cream of the crop, the gentleman of gentlemen, always where he needs to be doing the things he needs to do when they need to be done. Heck, you can, and some do, set their clock to his resolute behavior in the running of his household. If they knew the bridegroom, and indeed they believe they do, then carrying around extra oil is rather a waste of time and energy. A foolish thing, even, as it reveals you don't know the manners of the groom as like they do. Maybe they are right, you think. But the oil is here, so you continue chatting. But the odd thing is, the bridegroom, the bride, and the party seem to be on a different schedule than you all assumed. Though you are busy in conversation, you find yourself starting to fade a bit, and eventually, without even noticing, the whole gang is nodded off. That is, until you hear the words you've all been waiting for. Behold, the bridegroom is here. Come out to meet him. That means he's already home. Without hesitation, you jump to your feet, realizing the parade home has gone a different route, or the sleep was deeper than you thought, and the bridegroom and the bride just passed you by. But you make sure that you can both see the way and show yourself as a part of the waiting community, recognizable in the light. You make sure that your lamps are still alight. Unfortunately, half the crew's lights have gone out. The oil spent and lacking any extra, they, as both the unreasonably confident and the truly desperate often do, they feel entitled to what is another's and demand for you to give them what is yours. But you know you don't have enough, at least not enough for them and for yourself. What you have won't cover two. If you give it up, you'll both end up at the bridegroom's lightless and in the dark. So perhaps a bit annoyed at the previous accusations of foolishness, you and those who have extra oil, not additional to lend, mind you, but in the end, just what was needed. Let the other young women know that you are unable to share. You encourage them in their assumed wisdom of the bridegroom's workings to go buy some oil, knowing full well the shops are closed. Honestly, you and they hope that your refusal isn't the end of their story. After all, there's always that one family member who, in a pinch, has what you're looking for, even at the oddest hours. That is, unless they too are already at the party. But you know the time, so you send them on their way and head to do what you've come to do, to receive and be received into the party by the light of your lamp. Once in, you notice the door to the party eventually shuts, as is the custom. The time to enter is over. The time to party is taking all the focus. But you notice, too, that your fellow waiters and now lightless companions are missing. You make your way towards the gate, thinking maybe they got in just before it closed. Strangely enough, you see the bridegroom himself. Rather than where he's expected to be at the center of the attention, he's now attending to what has become a high, shrill demand. 
though containing notes of reverence somewhere underneath. Lord, Lord, open to us. There, outside the party, are your fellow invitees standing in the dark. Still, their mandate and lack of light demonstrate their dull-witted assumption of the time and the bridegroom. They neither call to him by name, nor plead to his reputation of grace, nor are they recognizable without their own lights. They are, true enough, in the dark. And that is what the bridegroom affirms, that they knew about him, even had reasonable assumptions and observations about his habits, but did not know him. The shut door argues Robert Kappen is God's final answer to the foolish wisdom of the world. The wisdom that assumes life with God operates like life in every other way. All the silly little girls, he says, the neurotics of faith, all the wise fools who are willing to trust him, to know them in the light, not trust what they assumed about his habits and his timing, have gone into the party. And all the bright, savvy types who thought they had it figured out outside are outside in the dark, with no oil and even less fun. The dreadful sentiments, amen, I say to you, I never knew you, is simply the truth of their condition. He does not say, mind you, I never called you. He does not say, I never loved you. He does not say, I never drew you to myself. He only says, I never knew you, because you never bothered to know me. Listen, we've, maybe this isn't true of you, but for me, this parable is always in my mind about oil. Do you have the oil? Do you have enough oil? What oil are you taking with you? But in truth, it's not a parable about oil at all. It's a parable about lamps, about having the light and being in the light. The words translated foolish or dull-witted mean lack, lacking a grip on reality. That's what Jesus calls those who aren't prepared to be in the light when it's time to be in the light. Thoughtful or wise are practically wise or shrewd. They know how to operate in the world as it really is. Again, Lacking grip on reality, the foolish or the dull-witted live in a world in a way incongruent with how the world truly operates. They live in the kingdom in a way that the kingdom doesn't actually operate in. The thoughtful, on the other hand, are the practically wise. They know how to live life day to day with the savvy to navigate how things really work in life with God. Jesus concludes this second of four end-to-end parables with the exhortation, Watch, stay alert, be ready, literally, For you do not know when this Son of Man, the same Son of Man from John, the one that everyone was confused about, what Son of Man dies? What Son of Man wins by losing? This Son of Man. This Son of Man arrives. The one who judges the world by dying for it and wins by losing is going to show up. You never know. Which is how life really works. Which is how the kingdom really works. So what questions does Jesus' story leave us with? What questions does he leave us with on how to actually live? These are the questions in a minute we're going to discuss. But this week, uh, let me kind of help you get this discussion going. Again, there's more than what I'm going to say to these, to these questions to kind of get your thoughts going. But my hope is that we can walk away from, we can walk away from these discussions this time together like the thoughtful, the practically wise, with what we need to be able to live in the light. That we actually get to walk away not with theory, of how God works and what he's doing, 
but the practicals of what he actually is, life in him actually looks like. So what, do, what is assumed by the two groups and by you? What do the two groups assume? They both assume that the party started some other time before them. They both assume that the party was going to end at some point, And they both assume that they would be at the party, that they're in, that they're going to be in on it. They assume that at some level, lamps would be needed to be brought into it. That's why the other ones run off for oil, right? They know that they need their lamp, not just to see their way there, but to be actually recognizable when they get there. To be able to be seen who they are. Both assume it. But, but they also assume a few different things. Those lacking a grip on reality trust in what they know, or assume they know about the bridegroom in the kingdom. Their final demand reveals they don't know him like they assumed, and even sadder that they are not recognizable to him in the dark. They assumed they knew the kingdom would work in a certain way. He would be here at a certain time. They had enough of it. They had enough in their, in their lamp, and that, that the, the party would pass right by them. They would be able to jump in. They would be able to walk into the light of it and be able to go in. The practically wise trust that they are known, but known only in the light. They assume that they'll need to stay in the light to be received. The dull-witted assume things go as planned, or at least how they have figured it out to go, that the kingdom of God shows up on schedule. The thoughtful assume things don't go as planned. Even if it's just a little hint or a nudge, at least not to their plans. The kingdom of God does have a plan and a schedule, it's just not their own. And they knew it. They assumed it. But what's missed out on? So say that's what the assumptions are. The assumptions of one, the, the thoughtful, the practically wise, is that the kingdom of God shows up when you don't expect it, doesn't go, quite go as planned, that you're only going to get to participate in it in the light. Well, the others thought, yeah, you only get to participate in the light, but it's going to go exactly how I thought it was going to go. It's going to come when I thought it was going to come. All that kind of stuff. But what's the consequence of getting that wrong? Or right? Well, if you get it right, it's the joy of receiving and being received, right? The joy of the party, being in on the party. But if you get it wrong, in the parable anyway, the foolish young women are not called wicked. They're not cast out into the darkness. That's not where we, though the darkness is where we last see them. We don't know if the bridegroom, who's already condescended himself to come to and respond to their demand, will open up the door to them. What we do know is they are missing out on the joy, and in, in its place, I'm sure, are anxious, entitled, and frustrated. So on one side, you miss out on joy. And what you get is anxiousness, entitlement, and frustration. If we feel anxious, entitled, and frustrated in our relationship with the Lord, I wonder if we have or walking in the light. It's just a thought. If we're maybe missing something or missing out on something. Because maybe that's not exactly what's intended, right? The intention of the bridegroom, the bride, and the, bride, the bridegroom's father is to invite us to the party. That we would be in on the party. That they want us at the party. That everything that's done the entire day is for us to conclude and be at the party. And we miss out on it, we miss out on joy, and in its place we get anxiousness, entitlement, and frustration. So then what does it mean to be ready? How can we be watchful, even in a delay? 
even if by all natural assumptions we are found drowsy and asleep in our waiting. I love that the, the, the ten young women are found, found sleeping, right? They fall asleep. Not only does it say that the delay was quite longer than expected, right? But it also says, like to some extent, that in some ways they kind of missed out on some of, the, some of the things going on around them. But that just missing out on some of the things going on around them wasn't too late. Like it wasn't the end, right? There was more to it than that. But what we've seen is since in the end, the things, thing is being seen in the light, and a kingdom that operates outside of our assumptions, then the thing to do is to live in the light. Now, when we say live in the light, what did John, when uh, um, Sam read for us, what did Je- who did Jesus say he was? The light. He, didn't, he said live in the light. Live with him. Be known by him. Walk with him. Be seen by him. Live in the light. I'm sure you can think of other verses right now in your head that are popping up of what it looks like to live in the light and what you do to live in the light. So I'm not going to steal those from you. But one of the things that our faith heritage has said over and over again for millennia now is the way that we wait in the light, the way that we walk in the light, the way that we move in the light, that we pray. That we pray. And we don't just pray how we want to pray, anxious, entitled, and frustrated. Though sometimes we do, admittedly. But we pray like Jesus taught us to pray. Jesus says in Matthew 6, do not be like them. When he says not like them, he specifically is referring to the Jews, the Pharisees and the scribes who thought they had everything figured out, and to the Greeks who were the wisest of them all. So those who they thought they had God on the inside figured out, and those who thought on the outside had life figured out. Jesus says, don't be like either one of these. For your Father knows, he says. So pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He taught us how to walk in the light by putting ourselves in the place of being known by God, our Father knows. To recognize who God is, to long for what God knows, and to ask again, not even ask, it's not a petition, it's actually a declaration. It's right, agreement. That your kingdom is coming, your will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. That this is the way Jesus taught us to enter into the light and to stay into the light. Sure, we can take it and make it all kinds of other things, like we've done this month on the collective prayer, if you've noticed. I don't know if you if you if you pray the collective prayer with us on Fridays, but we've just expanded on this prayer every week for the past four weeks, every Friday for the last four Fridays. In the light of how Jesus taught us to pray, we're praying other words that come specifically out of this, that help, help draw us just as Jesus taught us to, to draw us out of your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, into our daily bread. Forgiving our debts as we forgive those who are indebted to us. Not being pulled by, into temptation and led into it, but rather being ones who are not bound by the evil one, but know that it is his kingdom, his glory, and his power forever. Paul would understand, I think, what Jesus was saying. And he says it like this. He says, 
Pray at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert, with all perseverance, making supplications for the saints. That we don't pray, we pray how Jesus taught us to pray, and we pray in the Spirit for one another. And that's how we stay in the light. Again, that may not be the only way. You could come and probably come up with a whole list of, of things that you might include on that. But it seems the way Jesus tells his stories and the way Jesus lived his life and the what Jesus left us with and what those following Jesus intimately were left with was a life of praying the way he prayed. In the Spirit, by the Spirit, for those whom God had given him. And that's what we do. And how refreshing just is that, maybe, when we think about all the things that oil could be, all the things that it, that it might be, that we've been told it was, all the demands of things to build our own, our own lives up, and it seems like what Jesus wants us to do is just be known by him, to pray because the Father knows. To pray for one another because the Father knows the other. And that's what really being in the light is all about. So let me do this. Let me pray for us. And then I want to give you a time to just talk about it a little bit. Because you may not agree and you may have other things that you want to chat about. But my encouragement is to kind of work through these questions at least a little briefly. The first two. And then get down to the third one. How do we wait with readiness? So let me pray. Father, we thank you for a time. One more time. To hear as even, um, as the author of Hebrews says, today. Today is a day in which your rest is entered into, in which we can enter into your rest by your grace. So may we do that over these next few moments, Father. May we receive, Lord, the joy that comes from walking in the light. And Lord, where there is tension in our own hearts, to whether we are walking in the light or not. Father, I pray even now that our hearts would testify to what is true. That you know us, that your kingdom has come and that your will is being done on earth, in us, even as it is in heaven. And so while we can resist it, we cannot overcome it. So let us rest in your love and live in your light. In your son's name we pray. Amen. All right. Chat time. Only going to have about 11 minutes to chat this week. So again, the first couple of questions, if you want to talk about them, great. The idea is to try to get to the third question so that you can get to a little bit of take home. I know that's something that some people want. So go for it.